one of the most important concepts in all of Judaism and all of Torah thought and that of course is the concept of Teshuvah itself the notion of Teshuvah presupposes probably the most important sub-structured concept of Judaism which is the notion of free will if one does not have free will then obviously there's nothing to speak about in terms of Teshuvah the notion of free will means that a person at any point in life can in fact change his direction can in fact become another person and though he may have lived his life as a completely, totally evil person, at a certain point in life he decides, day before he dies, I want the Teshuvah, I want to change, Torah allows him to do this, and the Gosh Baruch accepts his Teshuvah, which is a very striking concept. Many of us on an emotional level reject the concept of Teshuvah, though of course we need it, we know about it, we want it, we care about it, <clears throat> necessary for our spiritual life, yet we reject it emotionally because it means that a man can be, can be theoretically or actually as evil a man as Hitler and yet do Teshuvah at the end of his life and be exonerated from all that he's done. Teshuvah is an extraordinary concept because it has an incredible spiritual depth to it. It is intellectually precise as the Rambam will teach us in a few moments and has many aspects and many angles and many elements to it all of which we want to try to explore. Now, Teshuvah is something which you will see pushes us to the point of credulity. We won't be able to believe some of the ideas that are mentioned about Teshuvah. And our focus will be on Harambam's view of it, but certainly we will, I'll try to take you beyond Harambam as well. We should get the Rambam. Anybody gets volume one. Although we have five copies over there. Good, thank you. Yeah, please go. Right. Right. Are you essentially saying there is no point, there is no concept of a point of no return? Okay, that's a very important question. Is there a point or a con- of no return when a person transgresses? It would be unfair of me to answer that question to you, you without showing it to you in the Rambam himself. Now, the question was, is there a point of no return from the point of view of a transgressor? And my answer was, it's something that we have to cover inside the Rambam to see all the essence, all the elements of the answer to that question. The Rambam certainly deals with that question. But we'll come back to that. Now, here's a concept that could be studied in, a multiple, in multiple fashions. Meaning, one can study this concept in the biblical literature... One can study this concept in the Talmudic Midrashic literature. One can study this literature, this topic in the Maimonidean fashion, which is a culmination in many ways, as well as contains innovative ideas about Teshuvah, without even telling you <coughs> that it's innovating. And one of the interesting sidelines that people who are scholars of Maimonidean literature will try to find out exactly where is the Rambam innovating as opposed to where the Rambam simply is capturing the essence of Talmudic thought. Often the Rambam will do that. Often the Rambam will simply conceptualize after he's classified an idea and then he will simply tell you over what the Gemara says about that particular idea. However, as well, equally true, any student of Maimonides would know that while the Rambam does conceptualize and classify as well as gather all the material throughout all of Shas, which sprinkles these ideas throughout Shas, in any topic, the Rambam will gather, classify, and conceptualize his material. Still, in all, the Rambam will seamlessly innovate a completely new idea that nobody's ever heard before and it's your job as a reader of the Rambam to know what is innovative and what is simply a restatement of what Talmud is saying or Madrash is saying about that particular topic. Why do you want to know that? Well, a person might say that what is Talmudically true is of an absolute value, whereas Maimonideanly true is of relative value. Although there are those, of course, like myself, who would say that the, what the Rambam says has to be viewed as that which is close to absolutely true. 
It's one man imposing his view on a Talmudic structure and building a structure, a logically developed structure. Those who know the Rambam love the Rambam. And if they love the Rambam, then he approaches absolute truth. Especially if you're of a philosophical temper. Not everybody is. If you're a philosophical temper, you want to forsake your She'elot, not from Shohan Aruch, who was not philosophically inclined, much more so mystically inclined, as well as being equally legally inclined. It's an interesting combination. Yusuf Kaido, of course, is a straight legalist. A legalist works in a certain kind of a fashion. How he approaches questions is in a legal fashion. As opposed to this, a mystic would approach things differently. Yusuf Kaido has these two polar opposites, legal and mystical, and one does not usually find any of the mystical elements or aspects in his Shulchan Aruch, but we do know that he was inclined in his book, Mokul Magen Misharim, to add elements of mysticism to his overall approach. Rambam, of course, is certainly a legalist in his thinking, but he's also equally true a philosopher, and therefore his Mishnah Torah is not simply a straight code, but rather, of course, obviously enough, we all know this, contains a very heavy amount of philosophy as well. The entire first section of Sefer HaMadzah, Book of Knowledge, is pure philosophy. Rambam is saying that it's absurd to study Jewish law without studying philosophy along with it. This issue does reach almost a crescendo in halakha such as Teshuvah, because Teshuvah is given over to that which is internal, speculative, theological, as you will see, and yet the Rambam will capture it legally as well. The Rambam does not allow you to escape from the discussion with a simple philosophical approach to it, He's going to bind you to this concept of Teshuvah with a legal, very clear, very precise legal definition as well as then flying on the wings of philosophical conceptions in order to give you a complete picture of it. For the Rambam, practice without philosophical understanding is meaningless and philosophical understanding which does not lead to practice would be equally impossible from a Judaic point of view. For the Rambam, there's two sides of the same coin that one must master in order for one to be a complete and perfect Jew. Therefore, the Rambam begins the Shet Torah with the Torah, philosophical principles. And throughout all the Torah, of course, this is Rabbi Tversky's point, the Rambam will add speculative insights, thought-provoking comments, philosophical excursions, including ending his book of law with the concept of Mashiach, that which we know least about, with the concept of Tehat HaMetim, of critical philosophical significance, whether a person resurrects after death or not, is of great interest and importance to a legal thinking. But you won't find this concept in any other book of Jewish law. No other code deals with this as part of its legal issues. Ram says, but if you to be a complete Jew, you must have from A to Z. You must have from the beginning principles of thinking, philosophy, and end on Yomotam Mashiach, which is what the Rambam, of course, does. So the Kasta Teshuvah is particularly prominent in the Rambam itself. And of course we all know that the Rambam places the Teshuvah in the very first section of the Chotoshuvah Torah. We've mentioned before on a number of different occasions that the placing of a particular law for the Rambam is of critical importance. It is to anybody who is that philosophically precise. What laws he puts where is of great significance. Example given. The fact the Rambam puts in the book of Kedushah, should raise a question in your mind. What question does it have? How are they all related? Why is Rambam putting in the book of holiness those laws of the forbidden foods as well as forbidden sexual relationships? How are all those three related? Clearly not obvious at all. And yet, this halakha, this order, ordering of halakhot, gives us this great insight into how the Rambam's mind works. Anybody want to hazard a guess? You should. Look, we uh, propose in that way as well. Sorry? He's pulling it from the Hamas. Okay, good. The Rambam seems to be based on a Vayikra statement. If you look at Book of Vayikra, chapter 18 and 19, Kedushim to you, 
we don't do that right now because right now because we want to go back to Teshuvah but their Kedushim to you deals with of course the forbidden sexual relationships which you read on Yom Kippur evening the abominational relationships what you're not allowed to cohabit with and immediately following that is chapter 19 Kedushim to you Kedushah and inappropriate sex go as diametrically opposed concepts we understand that if you want to be holy you must <coughs> keep away from these inappropriate sexual relationships and later on you will see the laws of Kashrut which of course then is summarized in the Torah in the Torah so Kedushah involves discipline discipline in your sexual relationships as well as discipline in what you eat to achieve holiness one must achieve that discipline. So that's the Rambam is clearly doing in that case. Now, of course, interestingly as well, Rambam puts the smack in the middle of the Chos Rebi'ah to bring sexual relationships the laws of Gerut. Conversion. One has to raise that question. Why are you, Rambam, putting Hilchot Gerut in the Halachot that have to do with Chos Rebi'ah? Not anybody else does that. So that's a question to be raised. Similarly, one of the unanswered questions that Rabbi Tversky deals with in his book on Mishnah the Rambam is why is Echot Avelut the next to last section of Halakha in Sefer Merachim Avelut death what are you putting it all the way back there for I have the answer I believe I think I have the answer anybody want to guess the answer I really think it's an obvious answer I don't know why anybody else would say it why do people saying this is a question it's obvious to me Echot Avelut deals with death correct what comes immediately following Echot Avelut Talks, he then talks about in Chot Melachim. What's the end of Chot Melachim? Mashiach. What's the relationship between Avilut and Mashiach? So the Rambam is saying, death should come at the end. Though death is a daily occurrence, you know, for a rabbi, for, for a community, etc. So the Rambam is saying, we shouldn't be dealing with death at the very beginning because the ultimate goal of Judaism is we want to ultimately defeat death so that there is resurrection of all those who have passed away. So the Rambam's ultimate goal of Judaism is resurrection. Spiritual resurrection, let's call it. So that is, we lead from Avilut right into, ultimately, spiritual resurrection. So it makes perfect sense where the Rambam puts it. Okay, I guess the people could ask questions on that because my point, my insight is not such a Hidush. It's an obvious point, I think. So probably one can ask questions on that. Let's not worry about that right now. Let's go back to Inyanet Teshuvah. So now one can study Teshuvah either biblically and find some radical concepts about it, Talmudically and Midrashically, and find some almost, in quotes, absurd comments about it. One can study the Rambam and see what is not only that which is culled from all Talmudic literature and Midrashic literature, of course, paying very careful attention to what the Rambam notes and includes, as well as the Rambam ignores and excludes. There are multiple statements that the Rambam is going to exclude. Why does the Rambam exclude that statement? Here's an interesting example that we studied in one of the classes this week that I found to be, I think it was on Shabbat, an extraordinary statement. In Masechet Yoma, we learn that the Rambam does not quote this issue that a Teshuvah Me'ava, very different than Teshuvah Me'ira. Although we're going to touch on that in a few moments, and we'll see how the Rambam deals with these concepts. But in Gavan Yuma, we learn the interesting point. How great Teshuvah is. Well, how great is Teshuvah? What's the greatest thing Teshuvah could do for you? Let's say you transgressed. You had a ham sandwich on white bread with a glass of milk on Yom Kippur. Right? Clean slate. That's the greatest power of Teshuvah gives you a clean slate. Right? Could you give me something even greater than that? Okay, good. As though he never did it. I want something even greater than that. Right. You skipped one step in that, but okay. Teshuvah not only gives you a clean slate, Teshuvah not only... Right, correct. Well, let's give it up. And once you look at that Gemara, it's a fantastic Gemara to look. We looked at it, I think, on Shabbat. That would, that would be yes, absolutely. New beginning, correct. Good new beginning. But even more than that, new beginning. If I were your lawyer, 
I don't want to only argue for a new beginning. I want something much more than that. What's the much more than that? And this is why this statement one could put in quotes as an absurd statement. That the Shakish tells us that if you do Teshuvah Mi'ira, I'm afraid of God's Yom Hadin, day of punishment, then all of your ham and egg sandwiches, Eli, become all of a sudden Shigagot. What does that mean, Shigagot? It means that you thought you're eating lot kosher, and really it was ham and eggs. It was a ham sandwich. So your what that what you did was which you knew it was ham and eggs. Hashem makes it into Hashem makes it into a mistake in ham and eggs. You made a mistake. You thought it was glob, but really it was intentional ham, but he turns it into an accident. Is that clear? Shvami Ahava goes a step further. He takes all of your ham and egg intentional transgressions and turns it into zechayot. It was glad kosher. Metaphysically and spiritually, all those transgressions became zechayot, meritorious deeds. How does it make sense? You are rewriting your personal spiritual history based on the concept of teshuvah. Impossible. Makes no sense. Nevertheless, that is the power of teshuvah. Is that the biblical power of teshuvah? Not really. We don't find that in Torah. In fact, in Torah, we find a very limited concept of teshuvah. It's not teshuvah in the book of Bereshit. Not teshuvah in the book of... Sorry? Explicitly. Explicitly. All right, correct. Explicitly, I'm talking about. In the book of Shemot, we don't have the word teshuvah. Vayikra. The Midbar has one reference to the Rambam sees as the root mitzvah teshuvah in the Midbar Perekher. Right? And in Devarim, we have it on two or three occasions. In Devarim Perek Vav, at the end in Pashat Vayilech. Sorry? Banim. Correct. So you have, biblically, it's not an expanded concept whatsoever. Now, of course, Eli's right. One can raise the question, did Cain do Teshuvah or not? We could study that. We're not going to. It's an important question. Rashi and Ibn Ezra have an intense argument as to whether or not Cain did Teshuvah for his transgression of fratricide, killing his brother. Did the Jews do Teshuvah Heta Egel? Do you see that explicitly stated? Where do we see that they did Teshuvah? Where do you see the word Teshuvah there? He prayed. Yeah, he really prayed for that. He doesn't need the Teshuvah. That word is not there. He prayed for them. That's what it seems to be. Of course, one can raise the question also intriguing. Moshe seems to have tra- transgressed with the Memeriva. For this, he is not allowed to enter into Israel. Does he ever do Teshuvah for that seeming transgression? It's repeated a number of times throughout. Look at Hashem Moti. Hashem says, You did not, you and Aaron did not sanctify my name, therefore you shall not enter into the land of Israel. You always have the opportunity. Part, but how would it have manifested itself? According to what, what's, you know, what's in the Torah, how would you know the answer to that question, whether he really did the Shubha or not? But we're not told that he did. I would imagine that Moshe Rabbeinu should <clears throat> be the model of somebody that could, could write, which one cannot do. You never write. So one, Moshe, at this height of this incredible human person, personality, they're playing a game. Zachary Sahakim, they're playing a game. They're playing a game. That a person could sin so egregiously with Kiddush Temoti, he didn't sanctify my name. No Kiddush Hashem. And Moshe could have gone to What is involved in Shiva? Okay, what's involved? What the Ramah lists as what's involved. The Ramah defines what the Shiva is all about, which we'll see in a moment. See that in a moment. But not about Moshe. In the prophetic literature, you find much more of an emphasis on Teshuvah itself. Much more of an emphasis. Why? Because the Nevi'im have a job. The job is bring the people back. So therefore you'll find Return, O Jews. Much more. Now, in one of the most intriguing biblical references to Teshuvah in the prophetic literature, you could find that, which we won't go into right now, in Yermiyahu Peret Gimel. I won't do it right now. But it's certainly an extraordinary statement of the power of Teshuvah. Right? Not to worry about right now. Now again, one can study this concept of Teshuvah biblically, 
I've given you some indication about what, <coughs> what that's all about. One can say midrashically, and the Gemara Yoma is an interesting example of the midrashic concept. On Saturday, we have a class at Jerry Bamir's house, a couple's class, and I'm probably going to do, although I don't promise this, going to do the notion of tashlich as a function of teshuvah. What's it really all about? Well, that we'll see as we go along. Which is based on Midrash Tan Huma. Sorry? Right? So it's based on Midrash Tan Huma. What does it really mean, tashlich? And I will argue that whereas on the one hand it could be the most exciting and extraordinary and spiritualizing ritual that the Jews may do, on the other hand, it could be almost a perversion of what Teshuvah is all about. It's A or B, sorry? Much, much worse than that. Much worse than that. No, it's a perversion. Perversion. I want to... I'll assume that you're coming Saturday night, so therefore I won't go into it right now. So I think I hope to just now, if you can. And we'll tape that one too. Yes, we will tape that one too. They said they don't want it to be taped. That's why we will tape it. So we'll see what happens. Okay, so in any case... Certainly, that's a, um, an interesting midrashic formulation of Teshuvah itself, which has a certain kind of tinge of Zohar on it as well. So there you have a lot of different elements going on. In that ritual of Teshuvah, you have biblical, Tanhumah, midrashic, as well as Kabbalistic elements of Teshuvah. That's the Saturday night. One can also study Teshuvah in a legal context, in a responsa context. Give me an example of a response element of Teshuvah. There's dozens of examples you could think of. This summer we did five of them, or four examples of that in response to literature. Why is it interesting? Teshuvah is a philosophical concept. It's an internal state of mind that a person regrets what he did. And yet it plays a very strong role in the response to literature. Eli and I could do, used to be me alone, but I forgot since then. So Eli and I would have to do a word search of Teshuvah in the response to literature. You'll find dozens of Teshuvah that deal with the issue of Teshuvah. Two very quick examples. We raised the question this past summer when a halakha conflicts. I don't think any of you were in the class this summer except for Stan. Where when a person transgresses, 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 right? What's a transgression? In one particular show that was written to a Hamavadeh Yosef, woman had a abortion before she married, not married, she was a loose woman, she became pregnant, had an abortion, did Teshuvah, became a firm woman, a very religious woman, she then ends up having mar- been married to a B'nai Barak person, B'nai Barak person, very, very, very righteous and very firm, and she now has a ba- first child, what's my question, it's a boy, therefore, we don't have Ben, can he say, can he say, no, why not, but Batara, Saying God's name in there, which is Zoraita. On the other hand, if she goes and tells him that I had an abortion before that, it's embarrassing. It's Shifikul Damim, it's Kavota Beriyot, it's a terrible situation. What should I do? He writes it up as a Teshuvah. Right? Kavota Beriyot versus Isud Zoraita. Similarly, another Teshuvah, which we dealt with this past summer, it was a wonderful series. Kavota Beriyot, another context. A man has an adulterous affair with a woman. Okay, he does Teshuvah. He wants to know, to Yosef, should I tell the husband of the wife with whom I had an adulterous affair, that I had an affair with her, why do I want to tell him that? Because every time that he sleeps with his wife, he is over on his sur. Because halakhically, that if you have an affair with a woman, she's asura le ba'la, asura le ba'la. She's prohibited to her husband, she's prohibited to the man that she had an affair with. So the man that she had an affair with, she was no longer, no longer an issue. Right? We understand that. Clear? The man with whom she had an affair is no longer an issue. Why not? Because he's the Teshuvah. But she's still prohibited to her husband. So now the question is, what should this Baal Teshuvah do? Should he allow this other man to sin every time that he sleeps with his wife? Or not? So it's Kavod HaBeriyot, again, this man's dignity, her dignity, versus this Sudorite on an ongoing basis. You might want to argue that in the case of the first case, it is simply a one-time affair that mentions Berchal and that's the end of the story. He's done the deed and steps out of the picture. 
Right, and the other man will transgress. Okay, and everything should now be fine and dandy. But now, not. Let's, let's, let's make it worse by going to ruin. <laughs> not ruin this woman, they transgress. Okay. Does not, does not the husband have a... On moral grounds. One can ask the question on moral grounds, but not on this issue. On one can. Should, should, this, should the husband ever be told? Should the husband be told on one level or another? Would you want to know? <laughs> if you were the husband, God forbid. But no, that's different from the point of view of the Shul about... No, no, no. Okay, there's, so there's, there's a ritual issue. No, but that's my problem with what you said. Is that you're saying, oh, because it's only a quote-unquote ritual issue, we should definitely not say anything to him, let the marriage go on, and let the guy remain in his ignorance. From a ritual point of view. But from a moral point of view, no, then we should definitely tell him because he should know. It's a right to know as a, as a husband, right? No, it's not so simple. Because one can play say the ritual is equal to the moral. Why should one lower the ritual? He's violating his suit every time he slips with his wife. So maybe he has a right, morally and ritually, to know. In any case, the Hanover Staff decides that this issue, Teshuvah, means the person should not tell the husband, and therefore, let it lie. Let sleeping dogs lie, don't wake them, etc. Although, at the end he says, if the man ever finds him in somehow, the end of Teshuvah, you should let him know at the end. Somehow let him know. Whatever. No, Step <clears throat> aside, right, right. That's two. Another interesting issue, another uh, response to literature where you find Teshuvah also is a very interesting case that we dealt with about six or seven years ago during the period, of course, Yom HaShoah, Holocaust literature. We study, we study Shilat um, from the Holocaust, those who are members of Ashur. And once we study the question of a man who had committed the sin slash crime of murder out of compassion. Meaning, there was a man in front of him. They were on this long death march. You heard of the March of the Living? This is the March of this is the Death March originally. And the man knew the man in front of him was not going to make it. Not going to make it. And the man told him, I'm not going to make it. Just push me, let me die. I don't want to be shot with him, let me die. So he pushed him down, he didn't get up, and he died. Just left down the side of him to die, and he died. So, is he a murderer? Well, if he's a murderer, what kind of halachot if you're a murderer? What do you mean he pushed him down? He pushed him down, threw him to the side, and that was the end. The man died. That didn't kill him. But he was weak. He yeah. was very weak. Extraordinary. It was cold. It was, uh, right. it was on his left leg, and he just gave him the last... Now, the man, of course, is doing teshuvah. Can he serve as a chazan in a shul? He survived this. He wants to serve as a chazan. Or more so, he wants to, he's a Kohen, I think he was a Kohen, he wants to be a Kohen. Kohen who kills cannot be a Kohen. Kohen who kills cannot be a practicing Kohen, right. Even if it's a car accident. All kinds of things, that's the Shuvah man. I did what I thought was right at the time. You're holding it against me now. So, of course, this question was addressed in this particular case to the Shuvah of Mimah Makim, the Prime Osri, who had to deal with this question and decide. Or, better even and more intense is the case where a man was a couple to survive, survives, he's now living in Israel, and he wants to be a chazan in a shul where other survivors w- want to pray. He did teshuvah completely. Me'avah, 100%. response to literature. Can he be the chazan in that shul? He was a couple. So that question was dealt with as well. He might not have a congregation, but he can be... Uh... Well, it's an interesting question. So, this concept of Shuvah appears biblically, Talmudically, Midrashically, Kabbalistically, responsibly, and even as a section in the Code of Jewish Law. Although, you of course would be aware that in the Abyss of Kairos, whole Shulchan Aruch, there is not a section called the Chot Shuvah. Raise the question why not? Right? Why is there no section called Chot Shuvah in the four Halakei Shuchan Aruch? The Rambam is the only codifier of Jewish law who includes the Shuvah as a halachic category for ten chapters. Why doesn't the Pesach Kairo? Why doesn't the Baal HaTurim, both of whom have written code of, code of, codes of Jewish law after the Rambam? Why is this not a subject to codification? Question. Is it a mitzvah? Now, they may argue, it's not a mitzvah. So, therefore, I have to use it. I think the, the reason is, is because to that, it's more of a conceptual matter. Okay. Whereas, 
from the Rambam's point of view, is it a mat- are good. Okay, now is it, it's a conceptual so matter. Good. Okay, good. But it's a conceptual. Is it a mitzvah or not? Is it one of the six hundred thirteen commandments? If it's it is, then it's not only conceptual; it's practical as well. That's only a very good question. And that would be a good criteria. So, the Rambam, of course, quotes it as a mitzvah in Book of the Midbar, Parashat Nasor. Right? Which chapter did we say before? Right. <clears throat> okay, good. You said did I say five, six? Right. Five, six is correct. Here, the this is the source for the Rambam. Vidvadu ithatatam asher asu. Confession. Let them confess their transgression. This is if you stole something from Kordesh. Ma'al. You stole something from Kordesh. You're guilty of stealing something from the holy territory. You took a cup from the Ben Amikdash. Actually, the question would be, if you steal from a shul, is that the same thing as this? Stama, it's not. If you steal from a shul, right? A book. The Kiddush cup. Book we might be more lenient with. Book we allow you to take home and use it. Talet. Tefillin. You know the pairs I've bought for the shul that have been disappearing? Yeah, so it's a good sign. <laughs> they were probably by the computer, is that what you're saying? That's what you're saying. No, I hold by the computer. I didn't say that on tape. Joey Bennett said that, not me. They were straight. He holds by it. So here the Rambam talks about this issue, and that's the Rambam's main pasuk for the mitzvah teshuvah. It's a mitzvah, therefore, is subject to classification, to analysis, to legal analysis. The Ramban disagrees. Ramban says that's not the pasuk teshuvah. <coughs> pasuk teshuvah, the Ramban finds in the book of Devarim. Parashat Nitzavim Right, Parashat Nitzavim People transgress and it's chapter 30, Pasuk 3 Veshav Hashem Elohecha that's what Amban's view as the biblical source for Teshuvah. Now one could raise the question, why did the Rambam not like this Pasuk? And why didn't the Ramban like the Pasuk of the Midbar? I'm not going to deal with that issue right now. It's something that one should analyze and think about. <clears throat> and it's certainly an important issue because it will give us a sense as to what Teshuvah really means. Uh, that might be one way of slicing the cake. Correct. You're right. So it's one of the issues involved. But okay, so my point so far is that Shuvah is a very important biblical concept. It appears limitedly in the five books of Moses. It appears much more significantly in the prophetic literature. It, afe- it appears much more expansively in the Talmudic Midrashic literature. It appears as well in Kabbalistic literature. It appears as well in responsive literature. It appears all over. However, the Rambam is he who has put in his code of Jewish law ten chapters, no small number, of issues related to Shuvah. And specifically, he places this where? In the essential core principles of what you have to know as a Jew. Right? So the Rambam clearly sees this as a very significant and a very important concept. And yet, again, as mentioned, it is absent from Shuhan Aruch. It's absent from almost from every other code of Jewish law that I know about. Every other code of Jewish law. Of course, one would take note that Rabbeinu Bahya, in his Havot a classic work, has an entire section on Teshuvah itself. That's a work of it's a work of thought, a philosophy, a speculation. It should be there. I was going to prepare and compare Chodesh Shiva and the Rambam Shiva, worlds apart. But we're going to get to that maybe next week or next year, one or the other. And or Rabbi Sa'ajah Gaon talks about the Shiva in the very last chapter of his philosophical work, Emirat the Art, 
And of course, another classic work is called is Sharet Teshuvah by Rabbi Yonah Grundy. Why he write this? Because he was one of those who were against the Rambam and was participated in burning the books of the Rambam and then the Teshuvah for this. Went to the Rambam's grave. Yes. I'm sorry? That's what is said about him. And he wrote this as an act of Teshuvah for having been involved in the burning of the books of the Rambam. Which is an interesting statement. Right? So those are the main works that one reads about. But again, if one were to read either Sharet Teshuvah of Rabbi Nuriya, which I've done, it's a different work completely than that's the Ajahs go on, or Havadil Avavot. All different perspectives, different elements of Teshuvah and Ram. What I want to do now is give you a sense of the overall issues of Teshuvah. Pass down, please. No, what we have. No, what you have. What you have, and I want to have given it to you. We're missing one? Okay, now what you have in front of you is a schematic form of what the Shuvah is all about. So this edition of the Rambam gives us, on your right-hand side, in a small print, second paragraph, a great, wonderful, overall view of what the Shuvah is all about. First, we want to get a sense of what are the issues that are involved here, raise some questions about the ordering of these laws the Rambam has given us, because we know that ordering is important, and then go a final step and study the last three chapters of the Chot Shuvah. Why the last three chapters? You'll see when we get there. Okay? So we're all together on this? Good. Chot Shuvah. I'll begin by asking you a question. If you want to get a great overview of the Talmudic view of Shuvah, what would you do? Obviously enough, go to the Rambam. As mentioned, the Rambam collects, gathers, classifies, conceptualizes all of Teshuvah. So Rambam is a great source. Of course, you have to know your Talmudic sources because you want to know where the Rambam innovated. Where the Rambam innovated an idea that he created. Where the Rambam innovated by splicing together two other ideas. That's also an innovation. How you put one, another, one idea next to another idea. Right? And one always wants to study the Rambam to know what's innovative, what's creative, what is simply a collection of Talmudic sources. Shuvah is a great example of that. We won't do it exactly right now, but something that one wants to study. So the Rambam, of course, in his Book of Jewish Law, Code, goes ahead and he gives us ten chapters of Teshuvah. Perfectly short. He begins by telling us, Ma'alat HaTeshuvah, importance of Teshuvah, Bidui Divarim. One has to confess one's sins. In fact, Moni, en ba'ya ba'zeh. Moni, tafsikad, en ba'ya ba'zeh. En miladim. En ba'ya ba'zeh. En miladim. En ba'ya. Vidui devarim. Confession. Now, of course, we will make the point when we get to the very first chapter of the Chosya Torah, which one should be aware of, that for the Rambam, in fact, Teshuvah is not simply an internal state or even a philosophical construct, but the Rambam says that Teshuvah really is Vidui. It's a verbalization of the transgression. Exactly. Which explains a lot what the Ram means with Teshuvah. If you look at the Chot Teshuvah, the first law, the law tells you, Mitzvah, Aseh Ahat, there's one Mitzvah, positive commandment, He must verbally confess his transgression. What if he does not verbally confess his transgression? Then his Vidui is missing, lacking, empty. He must verbally He's obligated to verbally confess in front of God. One can raise the question why that's important. Why one must verbally confess one's transgression. Important question. But for the Rambam, that's the essence of Teshuvah. Okay? Now let's just do schematically. Now we'll come back later on. The next issue that people might be concerned about is There are certain transgressions that are atoned for immediately when a person does Teshuvah and there are certain transgressions that are only atoned for after a time period. Now, even over here, you want to see what's really going on over here. We have to look at the Gemara Masechet Yomah Daf Per Vav it's Per Vav Amud Aleph We have an interesting statement by Rav Rav or Rabbi. Here he says, 
Another one of those radical Talmudic ideas that the essence of the day of the Kippur atones. Even Even the Teshuvah. The day itself atones. Where do I get that from? It's biblically based. What's the Pasuk? Kibayom Hazei Chaper Alechem Teretzchem. So atonement comes comes by automatically, even if you didn't do teshuvah. Yes, there's another opinion over there. The other opinion over there is that if you, if you only if you did teshuvah. Yes, but Mark. What? What's obvious? The second way you explained it. Correct. It's completely illogical. The first way you explained it. Yes. So we began this class. I think you were here. Kill this guy on Yom Kippur. And the day is going to make it <laughs> You're a newborn father, so please, uh, <laughs> a little more gentle in your words. <laughs> how, how can that make any sense? explodes categories of logic. It doesn't have to make sense. How does it make sense that I've lived a sinful life and all of a sudden I do Teshuvah the last minute, microsecond, before death and I'm atoned for it? If you say that, uh, you're gonna I didn't say that. I didn't say Echtah Ashuv. I didn't say Echtah Ashuv. It happens. Lived the whole life as a transgressor, Jack the Ripper, all of a sudden, last moment of death, Shvam Yalva. Almost impossible to do that. Psychologically. You think psychologically? Mm-hmm. I'm not 100% sure of that. I don't know that. Sounds good. <coughs> right. exactly. case, but in reality, that almost can't happen. I've, of course, known people, as you have, people that find themselves in the hospital, you know, 70, 80 years old, and the rabbi is there because look, this Shavai say Shema, you know, does, does that really mean anything? Why do you say no to that? He may really regret. It means a little, but you, come on. you can't regret that much. So the guy that's on his deathbed five minutes before is going to feel bad, and it means something. But it doesn't wipe everything away. How, how do you know it does not? How do you know too how late. deep? Too late. Now, of course, the rabbi will deal with your point and, and say that you're wrong. No, the guy that... The round that. You have to have an opportunity to transgress again to some degree okay. in order for, for us to know, for one to know whether it's... The Raman talks about... We're going to come to that. It's a very surface thing. We don't know that. Five minutes left. We don't know it. I'm saying, but probably... That's right. In one percent of the case, cases, it's sincere. 99% of the cases, 0.9, it is here. I don't think it's for us to judge. God will judge that. But yeah, but I don't know. Probably, but I don't know that. Go too deep, does, well, it's the Ramtos of that issue, where a person does Shuvah Me'olah, which of course is that what you're talking about, where he is fully atoned for, when he comes back to that situation again, this is Perek Bet Halacha Aleph, comes to that same situation that he transgressed, that foreign, beautiful looking woman, and he's still standing in his great strength and love of her, and he doesn't. And he does the shuvah, does not fall prey to her wily. Lure. Sorry. Wild. Yeah. Wild. Okay. Wild. And what does he do? He's great. Teshuvah, teshuvah, gemara. That's perfect teshuvah, right? That's the other extreme of that. Now, and if he's not able to physically do what he did the first time around, though it's not a great teshuvah. It feels good to Shuvah. All of his days. So he dies as a part of Shuvah. Call Abonotav Nim Halim. He means by that that you regret the life you lived. You lived as you Hefner. I am granting you. No, I don't know if I'd say that. Serious? I don't know if he was. What do you mean, serious? He's he's serious when he writes. He he held people. He expected people to to rise to the occasion of all facts of Jewish life. Accountable. Yeah. Okay, but he's saying over here, if you did teshuvah, what should I mean? Is the Rambam a realist? Did he know that people on their deathbed are going to say, "I'm sorry, I lived a horribly dissolute life." Yeah, so the person that did Teshuvah for that, you have to, is going to do Teshuvah for sure. Why? Because uh, at this point in time, when you're 65 or 68 or 75 years old, 
Sorry? Easy on those numbers. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to go up or lower? Up, up. When you're 93 years old, you have to. Well, he, he spent his energy, right? You have to, I don't know. You have to spend a lot of energy doing other things. When you've done all that, and you see your work, and okay, so I don't know how people really do that. But okay, either way. The Ramam's point is that you can do Teshuvah even on the day. So the answer is that, yes, Teshuvah of that type does work, as long as it is somewhat Teshuvah. I've seen people that live their whole life, you know, and I'm almost resentful of it. Now that you're 80 years old, and you don't have to work any longer on Shabbat, and you don't have to, you don't want to eat any out any longer, so now you became religious. <clears throat> okay, nevertheless, that's Teshuvah. Although, you may be able to say that not, he doesn't regret what he did. I call it, he says he regrets what he did. <clears throat> and if he had to do it again, would he do it differently? Change in life? I would say, he might, he might say, yes. I see that it, was, it wasn't great. What, so I worked all my whole life on Saturday Shabbat. What did I gain from that? I might have I did that. I would have rather to have been home, my family. Raised. Let's go on. There's a lot of important questions, and we'll see. But again, the notion of Atzmoshim, the Ram does not pass in that way is my point. Meaning that the Gemara has an opinion that the day itself atones for your sins, even if you don't do Teshuvah, correct? Ram does not accept that opinion. Only with Teshuvah. The Rambam, in, since you raised the issue, which I wish you didn't, but the Rambam will make the point that regarding Sidam Ishtalayah, the Rambam tells us that that would atone for people's transgressions, right? In this um, Sinosh Lech situation, chapter one bit, okay, right. So he says to us, if issue Kaparako is a Queen Gadol, so it atones for everybody, and the Queen Gadol does vidui, confesses, right. So he's like a Kapir, I call it Turah, so Sinosh Lech atones for all the sins of Turah, easy sins, harsh sins, where he did it intentionally, where he did it accidentally. Don't show a you know about it, you don't know about it, everything atones for. You had to do Teshuvah. The Rambam is insisting, insisting that you must do Teshuvah in order to atone for your sins. Same thing with this Yom Kippur. You must do Teshuvah in order to atone for your sins. Good. Look at Perek Bet. So now the Rambam talks about that issue. Those sins that, in Perek Aleph, those sins that are atoned for after a time period. It's a worthwhile subject to pursue. I want to see what he means by this. Not for now. Perek Shini. Shuvah Gerorah. What is full Teshuvah? At what point in time is Teshuvah most acceptable to Bore Olam? What is the answer to this? During Asetim Teshuvah. Those ten days of repentance, your Teshuvah is fully acceptable to Rakhilash Baruch Hu. Although, he says to us, that's on an individual level, if Klag Israel, for Jews as a whole, Teshuvah is always acceptable. Always, throughout the entire year. Erev Averot, Sayyid, Odele, Bares, Bechur, some transgressions you have to publicly announce. And some of them you don't publicly announce which ones are which. Ram gives in chapter 2. Then he gives us, what do you do if you transgress against a friend? I insulted you. What do I do? do, I, do does the you over here have to forgive me? What if I don't want to forgive you? What if I suspect that your apology is not so sincere? What do I do then? And you don't forgive me. So those are chapter 2. 3. Who's called a righteous person? Who's called a middle person? Who's called an evil person? That's one issue. And then, interestingly enough, the Ram then puts the reason for Tikiyat Shofar Now that seems to be out of place. 
Why is he putting that specifically right over here? Then, the Gentiles, the righteous Gentiles, Hasidim Mortalam, have a portion of the world to come. Why is Ram telling me that at that point? And then he gives us what feeds into it who has a portion in the world to come, who does not have a portion in the world to come, a list of our heretics, our Epicureans, and our sectarians. Ramam, in his most famous third chapter, Choteshuvah, details those categories of heretics, Epicureans, and sectarians. What? And they can make the Shuvah? They can. Everybody can make the Shuvah. Everybody can make it. But if you don't make the Shabbat, you're in this category and you're not Harut Lam Haba. So we would want to study that chapter as well. Especially in light of two weeks ago in Joy Bennon's house. <laughs> we want to figure out what was going on over there. When my go to dad to go to Israel, we could be caught in that. Uh, or had to go and oh, who knows what would happen to me. So in any case, one wants to know this issue. So they have no portion of the world to come. And there's all kinds of categories over here. So one would want to know that. Now, of course, over here, one should be Jewishly literate enough to know that here you have this fantastic, fantastic machloket between the Rambam and the Ravad. It's famous. What is it about? The Rambam says that if you believe that Hashem is corporeal, physical in any which way, then you are a heretic. You're out of the pale. You're out of the loop. And you're the Hakulam Haba. The Ravad over here says, what do you mean? Who is this young upstart of a rabbi saying that if you believe this many people who are greater than he believe that God has a physical body from the biblical text from the Midrashim and they believe that many believe that Mark Shapiro's article talks about this particular issue others who believe in the physicality or corporeality of God himself so, and they were great rabbis Right? And there's been always a search who did the Rambam have in, who the Rambam have in mind. Greater people in the Rambam who believe in the physicality of God and the Rambam said, no, 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 And the Rambam said, how can you say that? You know, which almost set the Rambam on fire against much of what the Rambam writes and has all of his footnotes or criticisms, one should say, at multiple places throughout Mishneh Torah. Did he believe in the Kofi? Of course not. He would say, I of course do not. But there is greater rabbis in the Rambam who believe in the corporeality of God and the Rambam says they're not part of Allah which is a very striking statement. Just say that they were misguided. This is an misguided. If you don't have the right set of beliefs you can't get to Allah from the Rambam's point of view. Okay, that's chapter 3. Okay, now it's 10 to 10. So we're supposed to pray Arbit now. Arbit. So do we want to do this and we'll continue next week? Yes. Well, I'm we have kids. Okay? So we'll... Stay tuned for next week. Stay tuned for next week. Well, thank you for coming.